I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Andy Rowe Show. Professor Emily Nagalski is an expert on sex. She's going to give us her advice on everything from orgasms, unwanted arousal, sex toys, and even what porn you should or shouldn't watch. I hope you enjoy the episode. We've got a couple of sponsors on board that are helping us out this season, and I've got a couple of discounts for you, so listen up because it's basically free money. We've got the award-winning Pat Coffee, which is some of the best-tasting coffee I've ever had. I'm not just making it up. They actually won the Great Taste 2020 get onto one of their subscription plans and they'll package it up so it fits through your letterbox. They're 100% sustainable and with my code you can get five quid off your first bag. Go to patcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T coffee.com and enter the code Andy Rowe at the checkout. That code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan. In season one you might have heard my neuroscientist interview and she spoke a lot about gut health and how it affects your brain and if you haven't heard it make sure you go back and have a listen it's amazing anyway we've got sons on board they're a men's health brand and they've got sons live bacteria supplement which is clinically proven to treat digestive problems and improve your gut health it's one of the most studied bacteria in the world and in one study in particular it helped eight out of ten people so it's good stuff so go and check it out at sons.co.uk and use the code andy25 to get 25 quid off your first order and you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do which is much appreciated Emily Nagoski, thank you very much for coming on the show. It is my pleasure. Before we before we start getting into the topic, let's just put it out. This is going to be an awkward conversation for me. Like it's, I actually feel quite brave. Like it's it's not an easy sort of subject. It is it's a taboo subject. I always think like if you can't have the conversation with your parents, then it's an awkward conversation to be having. You must get that a lot. It's one of the few behaviors we feel more comfortable doing than talking about even with the person we do it with. It's true. How, how did you even get into becoming a sex educator? When I was uh, 18 and I got to university, I was a big nerd, obviously. Uh, so I knew I was going to grad school, had no idea for what, but I knew I needed some volunteer work on my resume to make me look like a good candidate for grad school. And a guy on my floor was uh, pre-med and he said, come be a peer health educator with me. And I was like, I like health, why not? Uh, so I did, I, start, I got trained to go into residence halls to talk about sleep, stress, relationships, and sexuality. And I loved the nerd stuff. I love the brain stuff. It shows up in the book a lot. Mm. The work I was doing as a sex educator made me like who I am as a person because I could see that it was a making a difference in people's lives right there in the moment as I was speaking to them. Uh, and so that's the path I chose. And you've done TED Talks on the topic as well. Yeah. So I the first was a TEDx University of Nevada, Reno, which was like, I thought that was my only chance. And so I just tried to shoehorn everything into that talk. And then Ted, 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 main Ted invited me to come uh, and do one. And so I did that one because it was 2018. I did it on 
unwanted arousal, which is a big, important topic around consent. We'll talk about that. Yeah. As far as your profession goes, what's the question that you get asked the most? It's going to be something that includes the underlying question of, am I normal? So these days I get asked a lot, what if I just, is a sexual desire is, or sexual desire discrepancy in a relationship is the most common reason why someone would seek sex therapy. So if someone is considering sex therapy, they'll ask me about desire. Should I see a sex therapist? Especially if they're like, so my thing is like, I'm married and I love my partner, but if I never had sex again, that seems like it would be okay with me. Right. Is, is, is that normal? To which uh, there's a wonderful Canadian sex therapist and researcher named Peggy Kleinplatz, whose question to that client would be, so tell me more about the sex you do not want. What is it that you don't want when you don't want sex? And often they'll describe sex that is uh, disappointing, potentially painful, makes them feel more lonely than they felt before they had the sex. And if that's your experience of sex, of course you don't want it. Of, like it is normal not to want sex you do not enjoy. And so the follow-up question is what kind of sex would be worth wanting is the way Peggy talks about it. So first normalizing that it's, yeah, if you, don't, if you do not like the sex that is available to you, no wonder you do not want it. <laughs> that is normal. And what would you be willing to do to make that sex happen? But also like different things that I do desire. Someone asked, I really like to fuck my partner's armpit. Is that normal? In fact, it is called axillary intercourse. People love it when stuff has names. What? Yeah, I try it. Armpits are very sensitive. They're also very like wet and slippery and hairy. They're a lot like genitals, right? 100% wow. normal. You're allowed to do anything you like with a consenting peer. There are only two rules of what's normal. I know you have to stay neutral and um, you've heard a lot of stuff. Surely there, there must have been a time where you've gone, what? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, that, that, that's freaky. That's the freakiest thing I've heard. When that has happened, it is not because someone was doing consensual that they enjoyed that was outside. I mean, I don't know how graphic you would like me to get, but people tell me they like all the kinds of things you read about on the internet and you're like, whoa, like I have talked to people who like to do that thing. And no, my whole, like- I mean, you can be as graphic training, as you like. You can, yeah. I did. Uh, so part of the process of being trained as a sex educator is something called a SAR, a sexual attitude reassessment, which is like a weekend long workshop where you dig deep, you watch porn of all kinds of stuff and you process your feelings about it so that when you talk to somebody who really likes to be peed on or really likes to poop on someone, when they say that, you can genuinely be like, okay, so that's the thing. Is anal play something that more guys should experience with, do you think? There, so uh, one of the things sex educators like me say that makes people crazy is stop shooting on yourself. There is no should. There's only the fact that you have a body it has nerve endings, different kinds of nerve endings all over. Uh, the largest sex organ in your body is your skin. Anywhere on the surface of your skin, any kind of sensation in your skin can be erotic in the right context. 
And there is a lot of nerve sensations past the scrotum onto the perineum. It's called the taint, taint, pussy, taint, ass, the area between the scrotum and the anus. The anus is highly innervated. Like there's a lot of potential for sensation there, which if you're in the right state of mind can feel very erotic and pleasurable. If you're already really turned on, you're using lube and you've like, you're like real turned on and your partner puts a sensation in a place where it's new and interesting to you, your brain would be like, oh, oh, what's that? As opposed to if they just try to do it, like before you've even started, you're like just taking off your clothes and they dive right in. Like, no, not yet. You gotta wait. Preheat the oven. You mentioned lube there. Is that something that you think people and I don't I know you don't like the word should but should use more yeah this is one place this is the only piece of straight up advice that I give people like I teach whole weekend long workshops where it's just information and suggestions possibilities things to consider trying lube is the one thing where I'm like everyone should use lube I'm a lube evangelist there is no reason not to use it and every reason to use it yes it reduces tearing and discomfort with genitals, it also increases pleasure. Um, there are so many different kinds of lube that you can find. Find the one that works well for you, given the bodies of the people involved and like skin sensitivities and what sorts of barriers or kinds of penetration you're using. Um, if you're using any kind of latex, you don't want to use an oil-based lube. Certain silicone toys, you want to not use silicone lube with. Um, Water-based lubes are great because they can work with anything at all, but they do, the whole point of a lube is to reduce friction and friction plus water, like that's heat plus water equals evaporation. And so the water evaporates out of that lube so it doesn't last particularly long and it turns into this kind of sticky gummy mess. And yeah, it is possible to like, you get a spray bottle on your bedside table and you go ch -ch -ch and bring it back to life. You can do that, but a lot of people have enough trouble just like bringing out the lube bottle much less bringing out the spray bottle to like bring the lube back to life so oil lasts longer and silicone lasts longer if you're not worried about using latex barriers or silicone toys let's talk about orgasms okay i feel so proud of you for just saying it like that yeah i mean i've read your book so i, f I feel like i know you a little bit and i can just say it okay let's talk about orgasms it's it is it's common isn't it for uh, woman not to orgasm during sex through penetration, right? Yes. It is uh, more typical than otherwise. Right. Talk me through that because that's important because you, yeah. you're going to be – any any guy listening to this is going to be made to feel a whole lot better and that they haven't just been told that to make them feel better. Yeah. And it's going to make their partners feel a lot better too because the fact of the matter is that only a quarter of women are reliably orgasmic from vaginal penetration alone. In the science, it's called unassisted intercourse. Right. <laughs> um, so the remaining three quarters of women need clitoral stimulation. That's really the clitoris is the hokey pokey. It's what it's all about. Really what it's all about in terms of orgasmic sensation for people who have clitorises and vaginas. So it's typical for a woman not to have orgasm during penetration, despite everything you've read and seen in porn. Like that's just not how it works. We have known for half a century that this is true. I don't know why it's taking so long for this to like make it into the general public discourse, but everyone needs to know this. 
probably a person act needs either to add clitoral stimulation or just have clitoral stimulation in order to have an orgasm. Now people vary tremendously. Uh, for some people, the vagina is really great for orgasms. And here's the weird thing. The main thing I wanna say before we get to the sciencey stuff is that our culture has trained men like the way we've progressed as a society is from not caring at all about women's sexual pleasure to turning women's sexual pleasure into a measure of men's achievement. Like men now feel like if I can make my partner come, then I'm a real, I'm a real boy. Um, we have these county fairs. You might have them too, where there's these strength testing machines where you get like a giant hammer and you swing it down and the thing goes up and hits the bell and it goes ding. And like, you're a strong boy. Yeah. Um, and women's orgasm has turned into that. Like men are proving their own worth by giving their partners orgasms, which is a perfect dynamic for creating faking orgasms. Cause if she's like, I am tired and stressed, and, but I want my partner will not feel good about himself unless I have an orgasm. So sure, I love you, honey. <laughs> oh so good but it's also a little yeah. bit about sharing though isn't it because it's like if if a guy gets an orgasm he wants his female partner to get and how lovely that is and so the mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response is the dual control mechanism uh there's a sexual accelerator like a gas pedal and a brake and the accelerator responds to all the sex related stimuli so like sensations and thoughts and smells. And then the brake responds to all the potential threats and both are functioning at the same time. So your level of arousal is a combination of how much the ons are turned on and how much the offs are turned off. So we often think of orgasm just as like, did I provide enough stimulation for the gas pedal? But when people are slow to orgasm or have difficulty with orgasm, it's usually not because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator, it's because there's too much stimulation to the brake. So she's distracted, she's thinking about the dishes that are still in the sink and the laundry and the kids and her job. And even more, she's thinking like, am I taking too long? Is my partner worried about me? Like, what does my face look like? How are my boobs hanging? What about the cottage cheese on the back of my thighs? Like. They're worried about the sex that they're having while they're having it, and that's hitting the brakes. So if you really want to maximize pleasure for your partner, take away all performance anxiety. Consider it like the equivalent of like if you just put a spotlight on your penis and you're like, erection, go, go, get pretty, an erection right much. now. Do it. I need you to have an erection or I don't feel like a good person. So in the same way, when a woman feels like her partner really needs her to have an orgasm, she's constantly monitoring and like trying. And the more you try, the more difficult it becomes. Going back to 25% or a quarter of women yeah. orgasming through um, through penetration alone, because is that 25%? Oh, is that like th those 25% have had the biggest best dick? Or like, what's <laughs> like, why, is no. there so, why is there so much focus on... <laughs> On that, oh, that's the question. Yeah. I get interviewed by men so rarely. So I uh, don't often get asked the question that way. And I love that you're like, is the variable the shape and size of the penis? Like, is that the, is it, is, <laughs> Motion is the penis the, ocean? the issue? Right. Yeah. So like the standard line is it's not the size of the boat. It's the motion of the ocean. And the thing is, it's neither. 
It's it is it is the mutual interaction of the two. And even then it's so the primary predictor of uh, whether or not someone is going to have an orgasm with penetration alone is the distance between the clitoral head and the urethral meatus, which is not something you can right. change in a person's body. What it means is there are slight anatomical differences that make enough of a difference in function that when the vagina is penetrated, adequate clitoral stimulation is happening. Cause like physiologically, anatomically, the vagina is kind of far away from the clitoris, but the internal structures of the clitoris actually extend all the way down to the mouth of the vagina. And what scanning technology has allowed us to see is that when a, someone has an orgasm with vaginal penetration, what seems to be happening is that their internal clitoral structures are being stimulated from the inside through the vaginal wall. So they actually still are clitoral orgasms. It's just the internal structures of the clitoris instead of the clitoral hood. What about squirting? Is that something that's in in line with that same theory? It's like, it depends on the shape and what's happening. Yeah, people just vary. And the weird thing is, it's not just that people vary, it's that they change over their lifetime in ways that we do not yet have any research that explains it. I have a friend who never uh, ejaculated in her life until she got to the other side of menopause. And suddenly she was ejaculating like a quarter cup of fluid with every orgasm. Why? Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so basically the anatomy of how squirting works is um, every part of the it's a girl anatomy has an equivalent in the it's a boy anatomy and the it's a girl equivalent of the prostate is located right at the mouth of the urethra and the prostate uh, has two jobs really one it produces about half the volume of seminal fluid and it swells up around the urethra in order to make it basically impossible to urinate it blocks off the urethra when you are highly sexually aroused so there's no risk of urinating while you're aroused you might know like if you're really aroused and try to pee, you gotta like take some deep cleansing breaths and think about icebergs and stuff to let the arousal decrease so that you can pee. Same thing goes for people with vaginas. This urethral sponge swells up. And so for some people, when their vagina gets penetrated, the urethral sponge is stimulated. And it also, for some people, just like a prostate, will generate fluid. And that fluid will be pushed out with the contractions of orgasm. And that is some of the volume of ejaculate. The other source of volume of ejaculate is some people, we do not know why, even if they pee right before sex, their bladder will fill with fluid through sexual arousal. It is not urine. They have tested it chemically. It is filling up the bladder, but it is not urine. It is chemically very distinct. It's clear. It has a slightly different texture. Um, and it happens for some people and not for others. It happens some of the time and not others of the time. So some of the volume is coming directly from the bladder. And if it's a large volume of fluid, probably it's coming direct from the bladder. And again, it's being squeezed out by the contractions of orgasm. Is there a vibrator that, or, or a sex toy that guys should have a look at? There, there are all kinds of toys. There's a webcomic called Ojoy Sex Toy which is written by Erica Moen and her husband, Matt Nolan. Matt's actually British. 
And now he lives in Portland, Oregon, and they had like a long distance romance. Anyway, one of his jobs for the comic is to try out the toys that are for people with penises. And he does a great job of reviewing them. So if you're interested, go check out Ojoy Sex Toy. There's one, I think the most recent one is a review of a scrotum toy. Like, do you like a scrotum toy? How do you know until you try it? Do you have feelings about a toy specifically for your scrotum? You might, but how will you know until you try it? See, that's a question to the listeners. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna answer it here. No. <laughs> yes, I'm not asking you personally. How do you feel about a toy for your scrotum? <laughs> What's that like for you? <laughs> See, yeah, that this is what you're good at. What What about a toy for everyone? Like, is there a toy that you know partners or couples that? Oh, so many. I mean, any toy can be shared. I want to put in a plug. This is not, I'm not like in any way compensated for this, but there's a toy called the O-Nut. The O-Nut. The O-Nut, like donut. Right. It is a three separable, thick, fluffy silicone rings that you put around the shaft of a penis. Um, and you can use one, you can use two, you can use three. And what it does is it shortens the amount of shaft that can be in the vagina. So if she experiences pain with intercourse, it offers a lot of comfortable control over depth of penetration so that he doesn't have to worry about going too deep and hurting her. He can thrust as much as feels comfortable and good for him and know that there's a protection so when someone experiences pain with intercourse the onut is a great tool for uh reducing risk and when you reduce risk she doesn't have to worry and you know the like worry the like anticipation of will it be painful that hits the brakes so you take take that away and she's freed up to enjoy the sensation without having to worry about it of course use lube with the onut because uh, the silicone can get caught in hairs and that can get uncomfortable. So that's O-Nut, O-H-N-U-T, and uh, it's online, and there's actually 10% off at the moment. Oh, there you go. There you go. What about masturbation in general? Like, Is, is there a healthy limit, or is there a healthy number of times like a guy or a girl should masturbate? Because I, I had a friend that was going through IVF, and he mm -hmm. was saying that he was told he should be masturbating at least once a day. I don't know if he just made that up to maybe so he could masturbate more or whether or not that's actually um, true and that it like, actually helps the health. It freshens your... up the sperm supply. It does. Right, right. Okay. So the way sperm production works, at a very rough estimate, uh, testicles produce about a thousand sperm per heartbeat. And they just sort of like develop gradually over a couple of weeks until they're ready to be ejaculated out. So when you ejaculate regularly you have like fresh sperm like a larger proportion of younger sperm um because when you ejaculate it's like you know the entire population of new york city whoop, out um that's a very rough that's not a technical definition of how much sperm there are so yeah perfectly fair if you are uh trying to have super young and healthy sperm excited to be out in the world then uh once a day is a pretty good rate but the only reason why you need to have fresh, healthy, young sperm is if you are like going for pregnancy, like you want right. to use your sperm to get somebody pregnant. Otherwise, there sort of isn't like the production of young, healthy sperm in your ejaculate is not a thing that has to be true for you in any other setting or context. The 
appropriate frequency of masturbation is however feels right for you. Of course, like you had to know I was going to say it that way. Is there such a thing as too much masturbation? Frequency is not a measure of too much. Uh, what is a measure of too much is sort of your motivation for masturbating. The technical term here is a maladaptive strategy for managing negative affect. So if you're using masturbation as a way to avoid feeling difficult feelings, like if actually you're just really sad and lonely and so you masturbate because that's easier than addressing the sadness and the loneliness. If you are depressed or anxious and are masturbating to soothe the depression and anxiety, I'm worried about you. If you are using masturbation uh, as a way to avoid conflict with your partner because there's so much like tension between the two of you about sex, I'm worried. And if we can teach boys and help men to understand that like your worth is not measured by anything about what your penis does, nothing. Your penis has nothing to do with your worth, nothing. Not its shape, its size, what you do with it, how often you do anything with it. This is nothing, it's just, it's a fun toy. I'm glad you have it. Uh, as long as it's not in pain, it's healthy and good. But otherwise like- Is there nothing like that's instinctive that it's innate for men to to want to, you know, that primal instinct of wanting to spread their seed. Is that not even, has that been disproven or? Yeah. It has. Yeah, that's not a thing. I said it's not an wanting excuse to, anymore. Want, <laughs> no, it's 100%. It's not even that, like, it's 1956 is when it was definitively established that sex is not a drive. No one ever suffers tissue damage for want of sex, which is nobody ever died because they couldn't get laid. Uh. Met, it's, you can't generalize like this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Go on. In the way that women as a group have more sensitive brakes, men as a group have more sensitive accelerators. So it takes less stimulation for them to become interested in pursuing sex. So they, they might have like more interest, more desire actively, depending on what the sensitivity of their brakes and accelerator are and what's hitting their brakes or accelerator at any given moment. Sex is sufficiently fun for everybody that uh, it doesn't need to be a biological drive in order for us to have plenty of it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Let's get on to something that is quite, it could be, it can be a dark topic, but it's quite an important topic. Non-concordance. Do you want to talk mm -hmm. me through what that is? And I mean, take your time. Yeah. So yes, this is a really important topic and it's fundamentally misunderstood. 
Um, so I'm going to approach it from the boy angle, which I don't get to do very often. This is exciting. So the deal is there's not necessarily a relationship between what's happening with your genital blood flow and how turned on you feel. People with penises uh, generally experience this with, for example, morning wood. You wake up with an erection. That doesn't mean you're aroused or want sex. It just means like blood is flowing to your genitals. Oh, and morning glory. Oh, oh, is a morning glory thing we, we can, that you call it in America's yeah, morning wood? Call, call it whatever you want. Morning glory. Hey, I love the positivity of that. You're the educator. It doesn't uh, It doesn't mean anything in particular. If you're like, I have an erection. I wonder if this is an opportunity <laughs> to make use of this erection. Or do I just really need to pee? Erections happen throughout the night, especially in REM sleep, dreaming sleep. And it's not because you want sex through the night. It's because that's a natural physiological thing that happens. Um, and it can be annoying because you like really have to pee in the morning and you can't pee until your erection goes away some. In the same way, like you can really like it's the first time you're having sex with someone. You're really like excited about it, but you're also nervous. You want to make sure the person has a great time. You're like a little worried that your penis might not work the way you need it to. And you're so worried about the risk that your penis might not work the way you need it to that it actually doesn't. That's that performance anxiety we were talking about. A spotlight. Go. Erection. Go. You really <laughs> want the erection. You are aroused, but the erection isn't there. That's arousal non-concordance. Morning wood, when you're like, I just need to pee, please go away, erection. That's arousal non-concordance. It's a mismatch between what your genitals are doing and how you feel. It is more typical of women than of men. I think the reason why it's so difficult for people to embrace is because it is more typical of women than of men. Like when I show the chart showing, look, there's like a kind of like 50% overlap between how aroused a guy feels and how uh, much blood is flowing to his genitals. And there's a 10%, one zero percent overlap between uh, how much blood is flowing to a woman's genitals and how aroused she feels. You show that chart, 50% for men, 10% for women. Now, 50% is not 100%. It is still only 50%, but it's a super significantly strong correlation so let, let's just break that down a little bit sorry like so that 50 percent. so 50 percent of the time that men get uh it means that when you measure like 100 men right and you look at the correlation combined uh what so how these studies are done you bring somebody into a lab uh they get a small private room with a really comfortable like lazy boy chair uh and a tray that goes over their lap and a um a gauge that they put around their penis that measures the amount of blood flowing. And on the tray, there's a dial. It's literally called an arousometer and a remote control. And on the remote control, they watch all the porn, every kind of porn, all the porns you can imagine, porns you like, porns you don't like, porns that are like your sexual orientations, porns that are not your sexual orientations, even bonobo chimpanzees copulating, which you can find videos of that on YouTube if you want to. All the while you're watching all this porn, uh, the gauge on your penis is measuring blood flow. And on the arousometer, you move the dial to say how not at all aroused, middle aroused, very aroused, right? And then the research subject goes home. They put the gauge in the top shelf of the dishwasher, and then they look at the data. They were looking for a correlation between how much blood was flowing to the genitals and how aroused he said he felt. And when they put together the data of 100 men, what they find is about a 50% overlap overall. For some people, it's going to be stronger. For some people, it's going to be weaker, but overall, 
it's about 50%. So 50% of the time. There's an overlap, but there's, it's, it's not so much 50% of the time, but like 50% of your arousal score can be predicted from your genital response. Right. Or 50% of your genital response. Like if I know what your genital response is, I can say something about what your arousal level is going to be in that moment. Whereas when a woman comes in, uh, clean off the lazy boy chair real good, give her a vaginal photoplethysmograph, which is like a little tiny flashlight about the size of a tampon, goes in the vagina, the light bounces off the walls of the vagina and measures changes in blood flow. There's a lot of other ways to measure changes in blood flow also. Give her the same tray with the same arousometer, the same every different kind of porn. And we look at the correlation between how much blood is flowing to her genitals and how aroused she feels. And when you put the data from a hundred women together, what you find is there is almost no overlap between what's going on with her genitals and how aroused she feels. 10% overlap. So if you think of a Venn diagram overlapping circles, 10% of the circles overlap. Really? Okay, no one on hearing this thinks, so what's the problem with men that they've got such a strong overlap? Huh? No, the, the only people who think that are the scientists who were like, we must be doing something wrong because that is too strong a correlation. No correlations are that strong. Everyone else is like, what is the problem with women that their genitals are not predictive of their subjective arousal? What's going on? And the misunderstanding that a lot of people immediately jump to is that uh, women's genitals are doing stuff and they're the true accurate indicators of what's actually happening. Whereas their subjective arousal, women have just been shamed culturally out of awareness because what's going on with their genitals, it turns out, is women's genitals respond to kind of everything, whether the porn matches their sexual orientation or not, whether they like the particular porn or not, even to the bonobo chimpanzees copulating, not as much as to the human porn, but significantly above baseline. Women's genitals are responding to that. Does a woman's body responding to bonobo chimpanzees copulating, does that mean she wants or likes sex with the chimpanzees? I mean, you'd probably say no, obviously, because that's because it's patently ridiculous. Exactly, but then yes, but then that just throws out the window of what we all what we all think. Exactly, as far as- it throws out the window what we all think. Women's genitals may just respond to whatever is remotely sex related, regardless of whether it is wanted or liked. You cannot use a woman's genital response as an indicator of what she wants and likes. This gets misinterpreted all the time. Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? No, I haven't. Feel free not to. Okay. Um, not a fan then? Uh, it's not for me. I am a reader of romantic novels. Like, I really like them. I do a lot of work around sexual violence, and I require happily ever afters in my life. And romance novels, fiction, are a place where I can get that. Um, and so I did read it because my students were asking me about it. And I was like, I should, I should, I I had an open mind. And then I got to the first spanking scene. Now in a romance novel, what's supposed to happen in the first spanking scene is she's supposed, our heroine is supposed to be going, I know I'm not supposed to like this, but I like it so much. And she's like discovering something about 
herself of how much she really loves engaging in this behavior. Her partner's like, I want to do this. She's like, I'm not sure. But she tries and she's like, whoa, that is not what happens in the first spanking scene in Fifty Shades of Grey. What happens is she consents to it because her sexual and romantic partner wants to do it. She does not want it, but she consents. And then she does not like it. I read really carefully for even one word about pleasure. But no, she's squirming to get away. Her face hurts from scrunching it up so tight. It hurts, just stings and hurts. It's very uncomfortable. And, and yet, at the end of the spanking, our hero, Christian Gray, hero slash spanker slash douchebag, puts his fingers in her vagina and says, feel this. Anastasia, see how much your body likes this? You're soaking just for me. <laughs> Makes me a little, little nauseous just to say that. Um, so what is Christian Grey get wrong there? A couple of things, but the main thing is see how much your body likes this. Just because her vagina was wet does not tell us that she liked it. It tells us that she experienced a sex-related stimulus. And is it sex-related to have your sexual and romantic partner touching your butt? Yeah, absolutely. That is sex-related. And all a woman's genital response can reliably tell you is that something sex-related is probably happening right now. Something that her brain has interpreted as like, sure, that is vaguely remotely sex-related to the extent that it's like, I mean, I'm watching a couple of dogs fucking in the street and my genitals respond because that is vaguely sex related, I guess. Um, but it does not tell us whether it is wanted or liked. You say to yourself, okay, so that was definitely a sex related stimulus. That does not give me any information about whether she wanted or liked what happened. And, and what do you do when you don't know if someone wanted or liked what happened? You ask. Them. You ask. Yeah. Now, let me add here, there's a level of complexity because uh, women are trained from birth to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and unfailingly attentive to the needs of others at all times. When you do something and her genitals respond and you ask, did you like that? Her only acceptable answer is, mm-hmm, because she doesn't want to hurt your feelings. It doesn't right? make it any easier for, for a guy to understand, like, what, what, right. what are the signals then? Right, exactly. So, which is why like the level of trust needs to be so high that she doesn't feel like she has to protect your feelings. To know that you are strong enough as a man to receive sub-ideal feedback and not be crushed. So listen to her words. So when she says, no, I don't like this, step one. <laughs> listen agree that she knows and if if she's doing the like because it is the case that women are shamed out of believing that they're allowed to enjoy certain sexual things and so a woman may say no because she thinks that's what she's supposed to say because it's not okay that she likes the thing that she likes in which case or maybe she's playing hard to get she's like she wants you to chase her in which case stop anyway and if you're playing that game, like if you're playing a chase game and somebody's like, no, then you back off. Oh, 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 you don't want me to touch you? Oh, I'll stop. 
what do you think of that? And then they come back for more. That's how you know someone is playing the game with you of chase. Because when you're like, oh, oh, you don't want me to do that? Oh, then I'll stop. I'll go away. Sure thing. And they come back and are like, no, then you're playing a game. So that's how you can tell the difference between a sincere no and a like, I don't know if I'm supposed to say no. And with a yes, you can tell the difference between a sincere like, yes, I really want to like that. And a, I need you to feel okay. So I'm just going to go ahead and say yes. Uh, you can help make a more sincere yes certain by making sure you are very clear about what your sincere yeses are and what your sincere no's are and distinguishing between the things you like because they just give your body intense pleasure and things you like because they give your partner intense pleasure because that's what she's negotiating the things that are like a big yes for pleasure for her and the things that are a big yes because they give you pleasure you had a friend that had an issue with sexual non-concordance didn't you Right. Yeah. So this is way back when I was in undergrad, I was only 18 or 19 years old. And my best friend, we were talking about our sex lives and she's, she was starting to play with BDSM with power play and sensation play. Uh, so her partner tied her up with her arms above her head like this and had her straddle a bar, like, like a, like a broomstick. Like she was a witch riding a broomstick. Can you visualize that? Got right, it. So the bars pressing up against her clitoris and then he leaves. <laughs> power play it's a like making her wait yeah and uh so she's standing there with her arms tied above her head and straddling this bar pressed against her clitoris and she's like i'm bored i'm I'm not into this and he comes back and says how are you feeling and she's like i'm bored and i'm not into this and he looks at her and he looks at the bar and he says then why are you wet and when we understand, at the time, I did not know about arousal non-concordance and I had no idea what to say. And then in 2003, I learned about arousal non-concordance and I wanted to go back to my friend and be like, why was she wet? Non-concordance. Because there was the pressure against her clitoris. Is pressure against your clitoris a sex-related stimulus? It surely is, right? Does it mean she wanted or liked it? It did not. What tells us whether she wanted it or liked it though? I mean, she was saying it right out loud. She had no other motivation for being like, I'm bored. When someone tells you they're bored during sex, you should believe them. This must complicate things when, because I'm guessing these sorts of uh, incidents have ended up in a courtroom before. Yes. And, and how far can, like, how how non-concordant can a female be in, yeah. in that situation? Like, how aroused can their body be without them being aroused, for one of a better way of putting it? Yeah, all the way. So any level of genital response up to and including orgasm can happen in the absence of pleasure or desire. And this absolutely gets brought up in courtrooms, so much so that judges training is beginning to include arousal non-concordance that just because a person's body responds doesn't mean they want it or like it. It can be an involuntary response. In fact, right after I gave that TED talk, very shortly after, someone who saw the talk came up to me with tears in her eyes saying that um, she had had a very not good experience. And for years she had told herself that it 
because she had had orgasms, she must have wanted or liked it, even though it was on it, like she was drugged. It was a clear case of sexual assault. Um, but because her body had responded, she had like tried to tell herself, no, no, this feeling of like violation and trauma that I have must be a lie. But in fact, her body had been just doing automatically what it does in any context. And it was like a betrayal because it was doing that in the absence of any pleasure or desire, certainly in the absence of consent, which was stolen from her when she was drugged. Right. I know that's a really dark story, but yeah, that like that's dark. exactly the kind of thing that, ha and again, like how many stories have I heard like that from the most benign, but you're so wet. And then the person stops uh, all the way up to this experience. One time when I was talking about this with a one of the few guys who has interviewed me, he his response is, but sometimes it's the same, right? And like, sometimes it's the same. And it was that kind of energy where you could feel like he had done that. But you know, like, it's an education thing. And it's so important. Oh, my gosh. Like, yeah, I get like, yeah, if, if a girl says no, a girl says no. I don't, it doesn't. Everything else is out the window. That's fine. That's that's basic common sense right but like <laughs> thank you but it's like the it, it, guys aren't educated on non-concordance and i don't think females are either nope. gauging by what you've just said about some of your friends as well so i think that i don't know if you'd agree but it is weird that there is no education around sex other than like maybe one or two classes at school Right. when you're growing up and then there, there's nothing and there's no there's none of this like you you would never i'm guessing most people that listen to this podcast right now would have never have heard of non-concordance you talk a lot about context yes and creating the right context and obviously each person's context is different and yep. you know changes might, over time what about other things to get people in the mood like aphrodisiacs is that is that a thing that is that a thing that works or is it a, is it a bit more of a myth or is it a bit more of just like that's the context we've had an aphrodisiac so we've eaten this food so oh this is this is the it's just the context that's working there or yeah is it is the actual thing that you took working yeah there is no actual thing you can take that works even the effective sex drugs like the PDE5 inhibitors, the Viagra and Cialis and all those have like a 40% placebo effect, huge placebo effect. So just the fact that you took a pill helps your brain believe that you've created a context where erection is going to happen. Creating a context can involve, like, if I say to you, look, I have a PhD in this stuff. I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I'm an expert internationally. And when I tell you red M&Ms, you have to be really careful with how many red M&Ms you eat because <laughs> boy, like they will just like, you'll have to like jet home to get someplace private with your certain special someone. That's me like planting a placebo. So the next time you read a red M&M, if you eat red M&Ms, you're going to be like, remember that time that lady made the joke about the red M&Ms, but oh my God, red M&Ms. That's oh, how placebo works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So just, uh, just say to your partner, you know, this lady, she made this funny joke about how dangerous red M&Ms are because of how horny they make you. <laughs> so I'm going to hide the red M&Ms from you because I don't want you to feel like you don't have control over how much you want to jump my bones. 
that's placebo and that's creating a context and it's useful actually to make it playful and uh, like funny as opposed to being really sincere serious we take sexual arousal and behavior so seriously the stakes feel really high and like we have to be like really like focused and serious and do things right some of the best sex is full of laughter and play and silliness what are your thoughts on i know you talk about the eight elements of great six right uh so this is from remember peggy kleinplatz from the beginning of the conversation people ask uh what do i do if i just don't ever want to have sex with another person again and peggy says tell me more about the sex you don't want her research team interviewed dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex there's a couple of questions you've got like what does great sex look like how do you get to be a person who has great sex and let me just start by saying that the typical age at which her subjects had their first experience of extraordinary sex. Do you want to guess? Typical age at first experience of extraordinary sex? 35. 55. 55. It is so, all ahead of me. Right? It's all going to happen. Great to and, hear. <laughs> and the way it happens is you unlearn everything you thought you knew about sex and bodies and trust and relationships and safety and love. People who have extraordinary sex put a lot of effort into their sex. It matters to them. Her question is what kind of sex is worth having? And sex that's worth having is sex that's worth preparing for. They do a lot of preparation of like setting the stage, deliberately creating a context that allows them to sink into what I call the magic circle, to leave behind all the parts of their identities that they do not want to bring with them into the bed or wherever, the dungeon, and only allow to come to the forefront the parts of themselves that they really want present in that erotic moment. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. Um, and uh, loved, loved your book. And if, you, uh, so if you're listening to this now and you want to learn more about Emily, her book, Come As You Are, has been updated, hasn't it, for 2021? Yes, it has. That's how I spent my pandemic. And it's out now. It's a great read. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. And don't forget to leave us a review and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.